From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, entrepreneurs, athletes, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Hey, uh, welcome to the studio. Thank you. <laughs> I don't record here every day. It's, it's crazy. It's so nice. Uh, can you just say your name? Sure. What you do? Uh, my name is Eric Eddings, and I, I work at Gimlet Media. I am the co-host of The Nod with Brittany Luce. And you are uh, sitting across from me in the studio right now, but you're not actually the guest today on Without Fail. Correct, correct. It would be disappointing if I was. You're, you're more like sort of a co-host. Yes. <laughs> um, you guys at The Nod just did an interview with a woman named Erica Alexander. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to that episode, and I was thinking like, man, that is... Without fail episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, when I listen to the show, you listen back. I'm like, yeah, I just basically imitated Alex for about 45 minutes there. Well, now we're going to imitate you because oh. uh, it was it was such a good episode. It was such an interesting interview that um, I thought it'd be cool to just team up and play a version of that episode today on our program. But what I wanted to do with you mm -hmm. is to help set that up. Sure. So tell me, who is Erica Alexander to you? Oh, wow. And how did you come to interview her? So Erica Alexander is like one of the stars of my childhood. Like, I know like now we talk about like screen time and like how much TV should kids watch. I didn't have any of those rules. <laughs> uh, I watched an obscene <laughs> amount of TV as a kid. Yeah. Uh, but I'm thankful to my mom for it because I got to watch people like Erica Alexander. She got her first big break on The Cosby Show, uh -huh. a show everybody watched. And you know, this kind of moment in time that Erica Alexander was starting her ascent uh, was when TV networks were making tons of black shows. There were like 15 black primetime sitcoms. Like, that is crazy by today's standards, right. you know? So you've got Martin, you've got Parenthood. Of course, you got The Cosby Show, Family Matters. Like, it, it kind of goes on and on and on. Right. But where most people like know and love Eric Alexander is from Living Single. Mm -hmm. So Living Single was this show that came out in 1993 and it ran for five seasons. And it was, to be honest, it's, it's Friends. So Friends actually came out after Living Single and everybody, it's kind of common knowledge that, that basically like uh, white executives saw Living Single and were like, we could do that. Here's an idea. Let's do that with white people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get friends and you get like this monster success. Yeah, yeah. But Living Single, you know, is this ensemble show about a group of friends all living in the same building who mm -hmm. commonly like hang out. Uh, and it's just about their lives. And Eric Alexander played Maxine Shaw. So she was supposed to just be like an occasional reoccurring character. She didn't mm -hmm. like live in the house. Right. She's kind of the like Ross, I guess, of the. <laughs> so I'm sort of, of imagining deer. sort of it was like a mashup almost between like Friends and Seinfeld because she sounds like sort of the Kramer character. Yes. Okay. And so she would kind of like come in through the side door randomly, <laughs> literally, and you know, and and make all these like crazy jokes. And she was a lawyer, and she was just like this like firebrand energy. She was just so funny and uh, and exciting every time she walked on the screen. Yeah, what if we lose, Max? Lose? <laughs> Khadija, I am Maxine Shaw, attorney at law. I lose weight. I lose patience. If you keep working my nerves, I may lose my mind, but I do not lose cases. 
So you just get your butt used to leather, because you're coming home from court in a Lexus. And she just quickly became like one of the breakout stars of the show. Uh So, you know, as Living Single ended its run, I think everybody was like, oh, man, what is she going to do next? Like, the world is her oyster. Uh, But, you know, what most people didn't know is that there was this kind of massive shift happening in TV. Mm -hmm. And... And so, like, towards the end of the 90s, all these well-known primetime black TV shows are starting to wind down, and they're not getting replaced with any new black TV shows. And so for me, like, growing up, watching all this stuff, it was kind of confusing. Like, slowly but surely, all those shows are going away, and I'm just like, huh, why, like, you know, where's the replacement? (laughs) You know, like, what's what's happening here? Uh, You know, and I won't lie, like, some of the shows that those shows got replaced with, I liked, you know, like, uh, the WB, for example, they used to have a whole concentration of black programming. Uh Um, They killed a lot of it and replaced it with Dawson's Creek. I was a massive Dawson's Creek fan, you know? I watched a lot of that stuff. But I also wanted those other shows. It doesn't seem like it has to be either or. It shouldn't be. Right. And it's odd because a lot of these shows were ratings juggernauts. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Living Single was a a highly rated show. Uh, And so for Erica Alexander, that put her in this weird bind where everybody's like, you're this breakout star, but there are no roles Mm -hmm. for you, you know, comedic, dramatic, otherwise. And so this was something I kind of observed and a lot of people like talk about, like, it didn't make sense to me that people with that much talent would just disappear. Mm-hmm. There, like, there had to be a story there. So so you talked to Eric Alexander about all of this. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I remember thinking like, as I was listening to the interview was how nice it is to, like, hear somebody who's got their own really interesting personal story. Yeah. But it's also set against the, the backdrop of this larger sort of cultural context of yeah. this thing that's happening in, in entertainment. And she has this sort of inside view on this moment in time, which was really interesting to hear. Um, and then, you know, she really lands it with that final story that Ooh. she tells about. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, but we're going to kick it off by playing the interview that you did. Um, quick warning, there is some squaring in this episode. And I think what we're going to do is, is pick up the interview where you, Eric, and Erica start talking about some of the early roles Erica got as a black actress. Roles that she said she felt just reinforced stereotypes. Did you notice any trends and then types of things that you might have been uh, applying for, like any character archetypes? Oh, yeah, or things you like know, um, the uh, prostitute, the slave, the foster kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are my three first roles. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> not in that order. I'm not even kidding you. I was, yeah. That's, it's there's, like there a go. bingo card. Like, it really I, was <laughs> like, check, 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 check. But you were not the ingenue. Mm. And, and that was the problem because um, black People were not seen as things to be saved, cherished, and are regarded as an object of desire. And I was not only black, I was dark-skinned, I had nappy hair. So anything that I did had to be usually very serious, or I was be crying or suffering, and and that sucked. What was the role that you wanted to play, that you could have dreamed of playing? Um, I wanted to be... A Juliet. I wanted to be the things that I saw on television growing up. Um, I wanted to be, you know... Gidget, those roles didn't exist and they barely exist now for black people. But if they do, it's because it's been a a long, hard road of sort of appealing to the, um, I don't know, less to the narcissistic nature of the white male gaze. Sure, yeah. And more to the inclusive nature of what it is to be a woman and more importantly, what it is to be desired. Mm, Yeah. 
So one of the first big roles you did get was Cousin Pam on The Cosby Show. She was supposed to be that uh, cousin from the uh, other side of the tracks who went to live with the Huxtables. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about what you said about us all being family. And? <laughs> and to clarify, it's Sharon Day. Exactly what does that include? You mentioned the TV. Right. And the phone. Right. And the food in the car. Right. No, not the car. <laughs> No, 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 no. Part of me has a picture in my mind of what it must be like to be on this, like the biggest show, the biggest show on TV. I know me, a part of me would be insufferable, you know, just in the sense of like. <laughs> you are sufferable now, Eric. It's true, you know, especially if you ask Brittany. But, <laughs> but I'm wondering, like, is there a moment, a conversation you had with someone where you were just like, yo, this is kind of crazy. Like, I'm on The Cosby Show with Bill Cosby, who at the time, was that guy. Is there anything for you that illustrates, like, that feeling? Nope. (laughs) 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 The people I was working with, like Karen Melina White and uh, Alan Payne, Mm -hmm. we were all just sort of sitting there, like, didn't want to fuck it up. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he set us down and told us what our duty was to the race. We had to the race. You know, to not embarrass ourselves, to not play the fool or yeah. the, the you know, the, oh, 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 you know, what's yeah. that, the coon. Yeah. None of that. And we were like, got it. Now, in my mind, I'd never done that. Sure. But he was just saying, don't let this comedy fall into that. That's a ton of pressure. I mean, y'all were young. like <laughs> Crazy pressure. It's hard to be funny around it. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I didn't think that I did so well on that show, because I was Cousin Pam who came to shake things up. And the first thing I was told was, make sure you, this is the the track, don't step over it. And I thought I was there to do that. And I was going to do it in a way that I thought had integrity, because I never thought about not having integrity. But the fact that I could be suddenly judged by the man, the paramount of what is black and integrity and how not to be a coon and he doesn't curse in his shows and all the other stuff yeah. was really a heavy thing. And I, I, I got to tell you that it makes you silent. But it also, like, in a direct way, changes your circumstances, right? Probably with some sort of financial boost at, at that point as well. There's a financial boost. Um, yes, I come from a very, you know, simple background. And we had needs. And my family was um, in a real sort of... A hard situation. So my father had already had several heart attacks and was mm-hmm. dying. Oh. So a lot of what I experienced on the Godby Show, even monetarily, I was very happy to to help my family. So I bought the house and um, just financial things that you just should do. I was like, okay, here, here, here. And you, you don't have any sense that it's going to end either. Everyone's in the same boat, from Caramelina White to Al Payne. We were all sort of new money people. I was just like, oh, okay, there'll be more coming. Sure. Because everyone kept saying how good I was. Yeah. So I thought that it would keep going. It seems common knowledge that like, the success of The Cosby Show kind of opened up these, these additional doors for Black programming. Like, how much of that were you also observing? And how much of a, like, how much of a role did you think you could even play with that? It was huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's no doubt about it. I never saw anything like it. But it was also within a moment where Spike Lee was huge. And then there was Robert Townsend. And there were all these people creating their own space Mm -hmm. and saying it with their own voice. Because Cosby Show was not only big, it was 
sophisticated. Mm -hmm. It had nuance. Looking at that as a young actress, when you're starting to see that you're among the best, like you're sitting next to them, then you're saying, well, why not me? But there's a difference between seeing it happen and actually making it happen. Yeah. And so after the Cosby show ended, like you didn't get living single right away. And you and one of the other stars of the Cosby show, Karen Melina White, she plays Charmaine. You two developed this kind of like crazy idea to be rappers, right? <laughs> we Okay, so, um, you know, we would joke that we, we if we were rappers, we'd get more play. Yeah. Because the music business took off. And at that time, white Hollywood did not give money to anything outside of hip hop. At the time, there was, you know, rappers doing well, from MC Light to, you know, Salt and Pepper. Yeah. And they were getting the roles, too. We wanted to be rappers so we could be actors. Uh, we got a deal with Mercury Records. Wow. I was bass E and she was treble K. And we were the pl- <laughs> <laughs> we were the players. Okay. Yes. And um, we got this deal and we even laid down some tracks. Uh-huh. And uh, our first uh, records was called Rapsploitation. I mean, I, don't, I I hate to do this to you, but if if I had to ask you for a hot sixteen, <laughs> is that is, do you feel 16, like sure, is there right? something you could deliver? Oh yeah. So on this record, we're supposed to be you know going at each other. So we said, you know, you used to be a time you used to play the dozens. So uh, my rap goes like this. The sun had set on a jet black limo, smoke tent windows. It looked like a benzo. In walked the treble, no bigger than a pebble. Glittered like a diamond or a precious metal. Crowds gathered around and it started getting bigger. Looking at the flavor with the fever and the figure. Was she all that like a rose in a pot? Bustier pumped up boobs, not scratching up backs with nails courtesy of Lee. Trying to be all she can be with the army, a deep dark diva. Fellas had knocked her, and if you rocked her, Go see the doctor. <laughs> and, That's Bandy C, baby. So you said I, I still give got it, huh? Yeah, man. <laughs> he was out in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He wrote that. And he was part of a real group. And then Karen would come in and do her part. That's amazing. That's amazing. We were going to do it, and that deal fell through. Yeah. But I, I think, I'll be honest with you, I'm okay with that because <laughs> not too, it seems like not too long after that, you got Living Single, right? That's right. She went over to Different World, uh-huh. and I did Living Single a year after that. I mean, honestly, you were... Your forecast was right because I mean you joined that show with another rapper turned actor. I sure did. Queen Latifah. That's right. You played everyone's favorite mooch, Maxine Shaw, attorney at law. What's up, baby girl? Today my look and my law were fierce. I got my client the house, the Winnebago, alimony, and 70% of all the assets he tried to conceal. I left that man with nothing but a limp ball and half a tic-tac. Ha-ha! Don't touch me unless you want to get burned! For me, I mean, I think for a lot of folks, like, Max, that character... It felt pretty different than a lot of the than, than a lot of the representation of black women kind of at the time. Like, I'm curious for you, like, what might have appealed to you about the character of Max? Um, you know, nobody was checking for me on that show, hmm. so it hmm. gave me a lot of room mm-hmm. to just do whatever I wanted. So, there's nobody looking for me to make the show. They had Queen Latifah, they had Kim Coles from Living Color, and they had Tootie. Yeah. Kim Fields, you know, the veteran. I'm playing a version of my sister, my older sister, Carolyn, who is, to me, the looniest person I know <laughs> on the planet Earth. You know, the gunny, 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 the sort of, like, wild energy. Yeah. And I, when I say it's offbeat, 
because I'm I'm I I had this you know mini skirt on sure. and you know I would jump up on furniture and do all these things that I wanted. But I, I'm a person from Arizona. I grew yeah. up in the wild, so it didn't seem so weird to me to ignore the furniture and to ignore the to ignore the grammar and the periods and the commas. Mm-hmm. They were in my way. I just sort of said things the way I wanted to, and then it became you know the character. Well, it was bound to happen. Eventually, we all get crushed by the male libido. I was in love once. <laughs> Max, please, don't tell this story again. Then when my career got on track and his didn't, he just up and left. Just packed his little raggedy duffel bag and left. Also, you know, I admired um, a lot of strong men. So that sort of laid back, sort of like open leg mm-hmm. thing you see yeah. about Max. Yeah, she was always like relaxed. Like she just, it was the ownership to it. Yeah, yeah. it's her testosterone. Yeah. And she's a hefty, healthy version of it without losing her femininity. And that, I think, is a combination. And I think that's what people liked, that she had she had approached her sensuality and her sexuality like a man, mm-hmm. but she was in control of it like a woman. And she wasn't afraid of it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I've never heard uh, Max describe like that. That's It, it makes so much sense. Like you can kind of like pick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So it was kind of an interesting time. Like in 98, Living Single ended its run. And by then, many of the classic shows that people remember from that time, I guess like, like Martin, Fresh Prince, Family Matters, they have kind of already ended their run, been canceled or winding down. Yeah. It's also around the time when black shows were starting to be kind of concentrated on two networks. That's There's the WB and UPN. What did it feel like to be working at that time? You know, we were paired with The Martin Show when we first came out. Mm-hmm. And Living Single, um, I think, off its first or second night, did so well. Ratings were just as well or better. Yeah. Um, then we were on Sunday nights, and then they created a Thursday night sort of block mm-hmm. of black shows. It was Martin, us, New York Undercover. Uh-huh. And I could start to see, at least in my opinion, that we were going into a cultural ghetto. Hmm. And it worried me because up until that point, everything that I had been involved in, including the Cosby show, was in the mainstream. Just happened to have black cast. Suddenly we were black shows. So it felt really weird to be working in that time because you couldn't almost plot your next move without thinking, again, what version of blackness am I am now? Mm -hmm. And will I be able to transcend this again? And and, and to what? The only person who did it that I saw was Will Smith. Hmm. Will Smith transcended his show to become Independence Day. Mm -hmm. So... um, you could start to see the walls close in on us. After the break, what happened to Erica Alexander when the bottom fell out of black TV? There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. 
it's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Welcome back to Without Fail. Today, we're featuring a conversation that my colleague, Eric Eddings, co-host of The Nod, had with TV star Erica Alexander. By 1998, Erica Alexander's sitcom, Living Single, had been canceled, and she was looking for the next step in her career. But by then, roles were starting to disappear for Black actors, which meant that life for Erica was about to get harder. My manager gave me a call, and uh, she said, Hi, Erica, this is a hard call to make. Of course, my heart starts beating because my heart started beating whenever an agent called. I I think I have some kind of panic. It's just that fear that my life will suddenly change with whatever comes out of their mouth. Wow, yeah. And she goes, "Um, I got to tell you that, um, you know, your agency has, you know, let you go. I'm like, let me go. (laughs) Like, I let them go. What are you talking about? I'm going to make money for them. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that the person that was representing you went to a different agency and they just can't find anybody that, in this, this is the word, to get excited about you. Wow. That's a really low moment. Yeah. You know, that's like sort of being put out to pasture. I am just getting ready to come into probably the most money-making years of what I think a career could be for me. Suddenly, I'm no longer viable or valuable. Wow. You... You can't imagine. None of the big agencies ever wanted me. They never saw me as being valuable. But I can't say they ever saw many black women being valuable, Mm -hmm. you know. So it was Jada Pinkett, Nia Long, and those types. And that's all they wanted. And once they had those one or two, you can forget about getting in there. But everything was packaged through those big agencies. And if you weren't a part of it, that means you were outside the packaging. So when people say, well, why didn't you work more? It's because those roles are already given. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not getting any offers and or getting an audition. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm curious, like, how much of that, how much did you feel was everybody or just you? Like, I'm work- sure it was more widespread than I knew. And then maybe it's a black woman thing. You labor alone. Hmm. You don't want to look like you're complaining. You suck it up and you keep moving. You only find out that your sisters out there are having the same difficulty or even worse because you see them on a show and you go, God, I never knew. And, you know, what what I would have done, you know, or how could I have helped? But the truth is you want to project that you're still alive and viable. More importantly, you also want to project that it's not getting you down or getting to you. And there's no room for conversation. You see these people in audition every, like, three or four months. Mm -hmm. And it's only for a few minutes where they go, girl, we got to talk. Woo, it's hard out there. Woo, it's hard out here. Yeah, see, bye. And you leave. In this kind of in this period after, like, what were you being offered? Like, what were you going out for? Well, I mean, I got into the Mama Flores family. Uh, That was a miniseries that came just after Living Single. Mm -hmm. Part of the Roots Mm. anthology. It's the last one. It follows Mama Flora, young Flora, Mm -hmm. who I play, uh, through slave time where she's actually um, as a servant Mm. or a slave to a black man, played by Shamar Moore. The unforgettable story of a courageous woman. My name is Lincoln. My name's Flora. You ain't the first, and you ain't gonna be the last. (laughs) And um, I did the audition, and they really wanted me to do it, but I found out, because agents talk to you, that the the amount I was going to be paid was going to be less than many of the other... um, actors on there, including Queen Latifah, frankly, who was playing the granddaughter, and I was yeah. playing the title role with Cecily Tyson. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
I'd had also the success of living single. Yeah. So I wanted my money, the money I was paid to re- be reflected. That you earned. Yeah. Close. It wasn't even nowhere near close. It was like not even half the amount. I passed. I said, no, thank you. And I got this call from a producer, and he just reamed me out. You'll never work in this town. You'll never do this and that. How dare you? Boom, boom, boom. And I had never received a call like that in my life. Mm-hmm. It rattled me. Yeah. And I remember shaking visibly when I got off the phone and not really knowing what to do because it was like a bully move. Mm-hmm. But also, um, I didn't understand how saying no to something could suddenly make you a target. Yeah. That somebody would want to ruin your career. They end up coming up more. Mm-hmm. And I went to do the role. We filmed in Atlanta, in Georgia, mm-hmm. and and I end up having a, a mental breakdown. Oh, I'm I'm so sorry to hear that. Mm-hmm. Can you share? Like this is the part you you never hear from the people you see on screen. This is the this is the part you never know. Emotional work is 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 its own sort of being vulnerable and allowing yourself to be laid bare. Mm-hmm. Use your experience and your body and your emotions to give over to a thing, an entity, a character someone else created as its own, and then the combination being, you know, what, <laughs> what they film. Say, yeah. At the time, I wouldn't have known it, but up until that point, I think I kind of always resented that people thought that that came with no cost, hmm. and they thought it came easy. Yeah. My baby. And so there I was, and I was on a train, and I was playing this character, uh, you know, and she's just lost her baby, and she's on a train, and she's emotionally broke down about it. And I went completely numb. I was in the hold where you go down off the the, uh, train, off the steps, and Mm -hmm. if you know, that's a very slim passage, and the, the camera's above me. Every take took a long time to set up. Yeah. You could kind of stay in that space for all day. Mm. And um, I went numb. And I remember saying, I don't feel anything. I don't even feel like I'm here. Yeah. And I panicked. After one or two takes, I got up and I got past the camera and I ran to hair and makeup, which was in one of the cabooses and back set up. And I remember stumbling in there and falling at their feet and saying, I can't feel anything. I can't feel anything. And and I don't know what's happening to me. And I kept pinching myself. And I, I looking at them, and I must, my eyes must have been like rolling. Mm-hmm. And they're like, it's okay. It's okay, Kay, okay, Get some water, get some water. Even through all that, I couldn't make myself feel anything. Yeah. I'd never gone numb in my life. I'd always been able to transcend and actually perform. And I couldn't perform. Somehow got through this, the shooting and I got back to the, uh, to the base camp, and everything just poured out of me. And I was just sobbing. Somehow Cecily Tyson found out, and he knocked on my door and said, she wants to see you. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm weak. Well, sure. You know, this is embarrassing. Yeah. And I go in, and uh, she says, why didn't she was mad at them, the PAs? Why didn't they bring me to you? Yeah. Why? And, and I couldn't speak, and she said, um, Erica, breathe. Like, just breathe. And she was had all these plans that she wanted me to move into her condo with her. And mm-hmm. She was going to take <laughs> over my, you know, whatever, and we're going to do this and that. And I said, no, man, I can't do that. But I, uh, she did work through it with me. Wow. Like, you're talking to this, you're talking to this woman's line of an actress who has had this, like, 
amazing career, even at that point. And she's telling you to breathe. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this is not, I'm not talking to Cecily Tyson, but I was like, bitch, please. <laughs> I was like, I am breathing. I am breathing. I don't know how hard I can breathe. I can't take breathing no more. You know, but I have to say that one thing, breathe, is literally what I put in my head at any point now. She was right. Mm-hmm. That the beginning of humanness is the breath. And an actor must breathe to allow themselves to be vulnerable, to let go. Mm-hmm. And I spent my days in my hotel room in complete silence, hoping that my acting talent wasn't totally suborned and or dismissed or go away from me. Mm-hmm. And I spent every time I came on set, my legs were shaking and we had the long skirts. And if you could, if you remove the skirt, you would have seen me shaking. I would wow. press my, my fear down in my legs. And I finished the, um, the production, like by the hair of my chinny chin. And I had shut down in so many ways. I had rage in me, pure, unadulterated rage. Mm-hmm. I was mad I hadn't gotten what I thought I should be paid in life or any offers after, say, living single. I couldn't get in any larger agency to be packaged the way I saw Halle Berry and all these other people. You're not light. You're not this. You're not that. There were so many things I wasn't. I was failing. But the one thing I could do was act. And I couldn't do that anymore. I imagine it was, that, that's got to be terrifying. This is it was a, awful. I knew I wasn't doing what I was capable of. And the fear was is that I never would be able to return. But I'm curious, like, how, how much do you feel like other Black actresses were also going through a similar thing at this time? Like, you're using the, the real feelings, the pain, the anger, the rage that you have to channel that into these roles. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, how much do you... I mean, how much do you think that that might have been something that many other people were going through, too? Probably a lot of them were. Uh, what we're talking about is fear, hmm. just just plain fear. I think that one of the people that I th- at least thought had a platform to talk more about it was Oprah. Mm-hmm. I think that her acting talent was something that she was trying to make sure that, you know, she was on par with other people. You know, you know like, because she was coming from being a host— where would she have to go to hit those notes yeah. as an actress? And at least I appreciated that people were interested in asking her. When I tell you people didn't ask black women nothing, mm. they certainly didn't think that we had a process. And by the time they started to think about it, like Angie Bassett was getting her ass whooped and <laughs> what's love got to do yeah. with it. And Halle Berry was just getting the Oscar and start to really see us as the force of natures we are we are because we often took those really hard roles the hard roles aren't the usually the male roles yeah but the roles they give the hard work to are usually black women mm-hmm. and women of color you will be destroyed in that role yeah because that role is everything that they put on blackness so then they always come to you like oh you're the center of the show what that meant was, thank you very much. We'll pay you very little to do the most. Yeah. And you definitely don't have a process. Exactly. Yeah. Because you're just automatically magical and full of soul. Yeah. <laughs> you give away a piece of yourself in everything. It's like you shed a skin. And you hope that what's underneath is ready to be, you know, felt and touched. And often it isn't because you haven't examined yourself. Whew. I mean, what you're saying is exactly right. Like, Angela Bassett, for example, when she played Tina Turner, you heard a celebration of the role, but you didn't necessarily hear an in-depth discussion of her process and all the work that actually might have went into accomplishing that. Actually, right. They wanted to know how she got her muscles and how she does the dance moves. You were buff. Your arms looked great. Yes. So 
soon after that, just to kind of orient us in time, uh, by the early aughts, you know, those two networks where most of the Black characters on TV were, UPN and the WB, they merged and became the CW. And then the CW started making shows that were mostly mostly white teen dramas. Yes. So, yeah, if you were a witch or you were, <laughs> you know, a, a, a bad girl who was rich, yeah. you, you were suddenly, you know, in vogue. Um, and... Um, no, it was it was over. That was it was over. Yeah. It was over. So they successfully segregated television after the two thousands, and that was crazy. Yeah, because we had create we had made billions for them and had been successful. It just some shows you how strong. Like if racism is a rubber band, it would like to go back to its original position. And it's interesting too, because like you mentioned, it it didn't necess- it wasn't necessarily like these shows weren't doing well. Like you know, we're doing excellent. Yeah, and so it doesn't necessarily seem like there's a like a like some sort of strong monetary thing. It just seemed no, like a choice. Was from syndication on Living Single, we were um, a success. I'm sure that we made, and I've been told that we made more money than most because they were in the black the entire time. So they're doing the show for a very small a fraction of what, say, a Friends might take. There are shows that were much more expensive just on the face of it. And no one's telling you how valuable you are. And I don't even think they acknowledge how valuable that is to them. It's just the thing is, if if something is seen as disposable, Mm -hmm. they will throw you away, even if they're making money off of it. Yeah, that feels real as hell. Coming back to you, though, like you're still working during this time. But the opportunities were clearly few and far between. Like, how did that affect you? Like, I'm curious, even financially, I imagine that it was a oh, hard time. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, um, shortly after that, everything started being defunded. Mm-hmm. And they weren't making much of anything with any person of color. And you couldn't get even a guest job. And uh, you're living only on residuals when they come in, however they come in. And I went bankrupt. And I went bankrupt not buying cars and all that stuff, but yeah. just trying to pay off the mortgage and that type of thing. And so um, I had to give up my mother's house and sell that off and I declare bankruptcy. And you see how it's so interesting that a person who of means, yeah. that would be me, and who had options, slips very quickly through the cracks. And then suddenly you're facing eviction notices yourself and don't know what to do and don't know what to turn to. So much of that speaks to kind of like, honestly, the what feels like the precariousness of, you know, Black success. Like, you just never quite feel far enough that it, it can't slip away. It's like, yeah. I'm curious for you, like, what were the things that helped you to kind of like push through in this moment? I started to write. And create, like, and and forget started to write. I had started writing before, but I started to take the, have the discipline to write mm-hmm. and actually push through and finish things that I had started. But then at that time, the only thing I knew would change in my life was for me to take me seriously. And uh, my creative partner at the time was my husband. He's my ex-husband. His name is Tony Perrier. Mm-hmm. He'd written for all sorts of other people, scripts that had sit in people's shelves. And so we got together and we were going around selling a series that was called Concrete Park. Uh And cable had come in and fractured up everything. So there were new networks. And uh, we hit the road and took it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a meeting with a president of a very major studio that changed the whole course of that history. 
After the break, the meeting that changed the course of Erica's history and a fight about who gets to see themselves in the future. That's coming up. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I slash Spotify. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings. And voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. Welcome back to Without Fail. Today we're featuring a conversation that originally aired on another Gimlet show, The Nod, with TV star Erica Alexander. After a lot of the black primetime TV shows from the 90s went off the air, roles for black actors dried up. So Erica started to write her own material. She and her then-husband, Tony Purrier, had an idea for a TV show that was unlike anything they'd seen before. It was a sci-fi series with a diverse cast set in a future where the Earth's poor and unwanted are sent to a distant planet to work in mines until they revolt. Erica and Tony started shopping the idea around, and they landed a meeting with the head of a major TV studio. But, as she told Eric during their interview, that meeting, it went off the rails pretty quickly. So we went into the meeting and we started to pitch the story and the guy stops and says, let me stop you right there. He says, black people don't like science fiction because they don't see themselves in the future. <laughs> okay. That's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> we say, really? He said, yes. And he told us the story about a movie that he made. After they made the movie, they had a focus testing. Yeah. There was a young man that was there, a black man who was just sort of looking at the screen and they came from behind their doors or whatever. And they said, sir, do you have anything to ask? And he said, yeah, I just want to know. How'd that nigga get to Mars? In front? Yeah. So he had taken from that one thing that black people couldn't see themselves in the future. Wow. And so Tony said, "Uh, well, let me tell you something about black people. He said, the past is painful, the present precarious, the future is free. Yeah. We always see ourselves in the future. We're the aliens that came from across the ocean to rock your world and make your planets twirl. Yeah. And he told him, he schooled him about Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney and all these really cool people. And he was like, we're cosplaying before y'all even knew what it was about. Look at Funkadella, look yeah. at James Brown. That's not, that's real. We are futurists because you didn't give us this place in the now. You took away our past. So the future is all we have. Dude didn't like it. Yeah. He was just upset. He starts pushing our stuff all around and he said, and um, being very, you know, dismissive and what's that and what and so Tony said well now you calling my baby ugly why is it so important to you to get this thing made because fuck him that's why I'm hmm. not going up in nobody's place now at this point to be told by somebody the limitations of their imagination hmm. Because we've seen what their imagination has seen us as, monkeys, to be thrown in, in slavery, to be uh, marginalized and suppressed, to be outside of representation, to be dismissed after you make the money. 
And now you're telling us we can't see the future? No, you can't see the future. And in fact, if you see a white face, you can best believe that's a closed door. Mm -hmm. It's the black face that makes you think any race that you could go through it. That's real. Yeah. You put, they think, oh, if you put more white people in, more people will feel, you know, like it's open to them. You know, it'll be more mainstream. No, you put a white face on it, you close the door. Mm. Because most people think, that ain't for me. Yeah. You put a black person on it, people are like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. how? Because you know that they went through hell to get there. So fuck him. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go bankrupt and you ain't got nothing, every dime you spend, you know, is down to a meal, rent, and or gas, I'm not tripping on no dude talking about I'm not, can't see the future. Mm-hmm. I have to see the future. I've got to survive. Yeah. My now sucks. So we had to find a way to tell our story. We thought what we created was beautiful. Then mm. it deserved to live. Mm. And so Tony said, come on, Erica, let's go. And we stood up and we left. And he said, fuck it, I'll draw it. it- and he started to draw what is now called Concrete Park. Wow. So like, wait, so you you take this thing that in your mind is a TV show and right then you decide to make it a graphic novel. Mm -hmm. It was about finding a different way to tell your story. And we did. We sent a few panels off. He sent a few panels off to Mike Richardson. Now, this is a white man who's used to seeing creators come to him Mm -hmm. with unusual ideas from Frank Miller to, um, you know, 300, Hellboy, Sin City, all that, and making dreams come true in a very simple form, comic books. And he sent us uh, something right back and said, I'd like to talk to you about publishing this. And then two years later, Forbes said we were one of the best graphic novels in America. Wow. Yeah, like I know that conversation around Concrete Park happened a while ago, but like so much how you describe like what came after reflects this moment that I feel like we're in right now. Like I think about Issa Rae, who made the Aqua Black Girl web series before creating Insecure with HBO. Um, or or Justin Simeon, who made a trailer that ultimately became the film and later TV show, Dear White People. Is Is this just what the game is now? Like, do you have to create and write your own projects to have ownership of the actual trajectory of your, like, TV career? Yes. You have to create or you disappear. You Mm -hmm. will not be able to make it. Black people and people of color shouldn't be surprised that they have to do, me have to do 10 jobs, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you have to do them well. Yeah. At least four of them well, not just okay, very good. That's the exhausting part. Mm -hmm. If you are a person that is a disruptor, then you take the aches and pains too. Mm -hmm. And it ain't easy. And it's often a very isolating, lonely road. You may not break through, but that's courage. And I don't take it for granted. Erica has a new company called Color Farm Media, which uses technology to fund and create films and TV shows for Black audiences. She's also still acting. She's in a new TV show on Hulu about the rise of the Wu-Tang Clan. She plays Riz's mom. If you want more Living Single Nostalgia, or just more of Eric and his co-host Brittany, check out another of the Nods episodes titled To All the Boys in Rom-Coms Who Suck. In that episode, my colleague and Eric's co-host Brittany Luce makes the argument for why the character of Overton from Living Single should be the standard for a rom-com leading man. The Nod is produced by Eric Eddings, Brittany Luce, and Kate Parkinson-Morgan. The senior producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. 
This episode was edited by Sarah Saracen. Fact-checking by Saria Shockley. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick, Rob Zipko, and Hiba El Arbani. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Music and mixing on this episode by Cedric Wilson and Bobby Lord. If you like Without Fail and The Nod, follow us both. Why not? You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Listening.